Turn with me, please, to 2 Corinthians this evening. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, as I said last week, I wanted to start a series on this book, so I'll introduce it to you this evening. Look at the first uh, first couple of verses of 2 Corinthians 1, but we'll we'll mainly serve tonight to kind of introduce ourselves to the book as a whole. So if you would like to also put your finger in Acts 18, uh, then I would like to read at some point uh, the story of the founding of the church at Corinth, which we find in Acts chapter 18. So let me read the opening verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Hear now God's word. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's ask for God's help. Father in heaven, again, thanks for your word that you've given us. And even this, uh, the whole Bible, it, it is how you communicate to us, but here's a letter that's perhaps you know a little more off the beaten road, maybe one we're not as familiar with. So, Lord, teach us tonight and show us what contribution uh, this letter would make to our understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ and how it might enrich our Christian life and the life of this church, how it might make us to grow spiritually, how it might help us to tap into a few aspects of the Christian life that maybe aren't forefront in our minds, such as weakness and suffering, and the sufficiency of your grace, uh, that when we are weak, that's when you are strong. So help us tonight to consider this letter and be our teacher throughout this series. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I've said, I want to focus tonight on the opening of this letter in order to introduce the letter to you. I have a friend who is doing a through-the-year Bible reading plan, and when he got to 2 Corinthians, he texted me and said, you know, 2 Corinthians is just a strange book. And as I read that, I thought, you know, of course I've read it at some point and studied it in school, but I don't know a lot about this book. And started reading it more and digging in and and got a hunger to to study it more in depth and to share uh, that with you and, and lead us through on a study of Uh, This great book. I've never sat through a series on 2 Corinthians. I don't know if you have either, but I'll look forward to going through this together. Now, as we often say when we look at Paul's letters, we mentioned this this morning in Romans 16, his letters look a lot like other letters in the ancient world. They're Bible to us, but when they were first being read and distributed, I I think people sensed a, a sense of authority from the apostle and God speaking through them, but they looked and sounded a lot, a lot like letters in Paul's day. They had standard openings and greetings and bodies and closings of the letters. It looked like the letters they would send and receive to one another. So we have before us today what is the letter opening where the author names himself and then identifies the recipients of his letter and then greets them with some sort of benediction. That's where you're getting a little more into unique Christian content, and then the letter body that follows from there. So we can see here an ordinary letter, yet one that's been shaped by Paul's concerns, his beliefs as a Christian, 
his purpose in writing to the Corinthian churches, his job as an apostle to oversee the spiritual life of these churches. One uh, author describes it as an official letter sent by a person in an official capacity to a group of people under that person's authority. Paul, functioning like an apostle, dispatches this letter, which is more than just, hey, how are you? I hope you're doing well. It's a letter with a very specific purpose uh, to help the church in their spiritual life. A lot of illustrations have been given for you know, how to conceive of the Bible. Some compare it to a script. If you think of actors in a play or in a theater, this is the script that's given to us as the people of God, showing us how to fulfill our part uh, in God's great mission and God's great purposes. Or it's a story, and we find ourselves as characters living out our role in that story. This is a letter written to the churches to help them find that place, find that role, learn how to live as God's people in the church and in the world. And of course, coming to them from the apostle, there would be a certain a measure of seriousness to it. You think about when you go to the mailbox and flip through your mail, there's some stuff that as soon as you see it, you know it's junk mail. It just goes right in the garbage. You don't even look at it. Other letters stand out. That looks a little more official. I better make sure I give some attention to that. This is one of those letters. It comes from Paul to say, listen to what God is saying to his churches. So I'm going to break it down under a few different headings. First, just the author himself, Paul. We read in 2 Corinthians, or let me put it like this. We get a picture in 2 Corinthians of the heart of Paul that we don't get in some of his other letters. These two letters, and maybe 2 Corinthians even more in particular, really exposes the heart of Paul and his relationship with the Corinthian Christians. So one author writes, We see here the heart of Paul. Paul saw himself as a kind of father to the Corinthians through the gospel. He constantly affirmed his love for them, even when correction and discipline was necessary. These letters reveal the real Paul, not simply as apostle or theologian, but as pastor, caring for his converts with a deep and resilient love. Nowhere else in Paul's letters can we observe his enduring relationship with a particular church. So a real exposure of the apostle's heart in this letter of 2 Corinthians, how he interacted with a church, how he cared for them, what he thought about them, and what he did when there was conflict between him and the church. And in some of the things I'll say tonight, you know, there won't be chapter verse to immediately show you where you see that, but it will be the kinds of things that we'll notice as we go through the letter. So you can note some of these or just keep them in mind. Maybe it will inspire you to do your own reading of the letter, to read through 2 Corinthians as a whole, front to back, or both 1 and 2 Corinthians. In, in God's providence, uh, Graham is teaching through 1 Corinthians in his Sunday school class. We didn't plan that. I know that joke gets made all the time, but we didn't. So here we have a wonderful opportunity to study uh, the Corinthian letters uh, together. And especially in this second letter, we see Paul's heart. So if you think about a letter like Romans that we're finishing on Sunday mornings, that's a very systematically organized letter. You know, looking at sin, looking at justification by faith, looking at spiritual growth, etc. It 
as I've often said, if, if it be Romans is used to introduce people and train them in the Christian faith. It, it just lends itself very easily to that purpose because of the way it's organized. Well, if Romans is Paul's most systematic treatment, then we might be able to say that First and Second Corinthians shows us how we should live such theology. If Romans is what you need to know, and, and don't be too watertight with that, but if Romans is how we need to think and what we need to know, First and Second Corinthians is, all right, here's how you live it out in the church. Here, here's what difference it makes to our life and our identity as Christians. So the author of this letter, according to the opening word, is Paul. Now I want to say something quickly about the authority that's behind the letter. Paul goes on to describe himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. So we have the author, and now we have the authority. Now, apostle, ironically, we we talked about this this morning. I forgot that that this would come up in both messages. As I put before you this morning when we looked at Andronicus and Junia, uh, outstanding among the apostles, sometimes the word apostle is used broadly. There's just numerous places where Paul names people as apostles that were not part of the 12 original followers of Jesus Christ. Here in the introduction of 2 Corinthians... He's probably using it a little more narrowly. In other words, he's identifying that unique and special calling that he has to be an overseer of the churches. Not just one sent out to start churches, but one who has a particular authority, a particular responsibility to oversee these churches and get them on their feet as this whole Christian movement gets started. One who can appoint elders, so to speak, as he goes from city to city. As an eyewitness of the risen Christ, as one with a special commission from God, that is the job God has given him to do. One directly commissioned by the Lord for a unique, authoritative role in the early church. And as far as Paul is concerned, he is an apostle by the will of God. So God the Father, Jesus, they both took the initiative, working there as one, to call Paul to be an apostle. I mentioned this at our men's prayer breakfast. His whole sense of identity is rooted in that Damascus Road experience. God appeared to him, knocked him off his animal, blinded him, called him to faith in Jesus. And as he was being called to faith in Jesus, he was called to his apostolic task. God just rolled both together for Paul there on the Damascus Road. Now having said that, that was not his only basis of his calling. We also read in Galatians 2 that eventually Paul went up to the church at Jerusalem and the leaders in that church authenticated his message. So he saw Christ patching together some of the timeline from Acts and the Apostles. He spent a few years in Arabia probably studying his Old Testament, rereading it in the, life, in the light of Christ, trying to make sense of what had happened to him there on the Damascus Road, and eventually interacting with church leaders who said, you have our blessing, go preach the gospel, just please don't forget the poor. So it's a total package, a call from the Lord, a study of the scriptures, an approval of church authorities, and thus you have this Apostle Paul out on this unique task of establishing churches and showing them that he is being faithful to 
his God, reading his Old Testament in the light of Christ, giving them the gospel that Jesus Christ declared. And that gives them then this certain measure of authority to write this letter uh, in order to care for the churches. Now notice, by the way, he also includes Timothy in this task. So he says, Paul, an apostle. He describes himself alone as an apostle. And yet he also names Timothy. So that means Timothy is very closely associated with the apostolic task. And by the way, the author, the way ancient letters work is the people mentioned at the beginning are the author. So Paul, in a sense, is including Timothy in the authorial task as well. Now, I don't know if that means, you know, Paul wrote chapter 1, Timothy wrote chapter 2. Probably doesn't work quite like that. But there's a sense in which it's coming from Paul and Timothy with him as caretakers of the church. This is what these men are saying to the church here in Corinth. So we have the author and we have the authority. Let's consider then the audience. I don't normally do all the same letter, but but once I had the first two, I couldn't stop. So we've got the audience, all right, as the third uh, way of looking at this introduction. Paul writes to the church of God in Corinth together with all his holy people. Now, when you came in tonight, you, you were probably should have been given a, a copy of this map. If, if you want to look at it just for a moment, this won't change your life, you know, and make you ten times more spiritual than you were when you came in. But at the same time, I always find it helpful if you're studying a book of the Bible, you're studying one of these letters, just to get a sense of where some of these things uh, took place. So if you look at this uh, map, you've got there kind of right in the middle of your map, the Aegean Sea. So to the left of that, you'll see, if it came through in the copy, the region in all caps called Achaia. Uh, Corinth is the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. Notice to the north there, Macedonia. So that's where we read about the churches of Thessalonica. So remember the Macedonian call, the man in the vision telling Paul, come over into Macedonia and help us. If you go to the right, back across the Aegean Sea to the east, that little chunk of land on the far right of your map, that's modern-day Turkey, where Paul did most of the first two missionary journeys. He established churches and then visited them a second time. Then God called him to go further west, where he made his way into Macedonia and down into Achaia. Now you're looking at modern-day Greece. And Corinth there, If again, the, the map quality might not quite show up, but, but if you see there kind of going down, uh, that, that landmass on the left going down, where you see the water pressing into this little point, that is the city of Corinth. Of course, further west, you start getting into Italy uh, and Western Europe. But what is this city, and why does this matter? Well, again, Corinth is the capital of this Roman province of Achaia. So it's a major city. It's a populous place. It's a center of government and also economic activity. It was actually destroyed by the Romans in 146 B.C., but then Julius Caesar rebuilt it in 44 B.C. By the time we get to Paul's day, it was once again a thriving city. Probably about 80,000 residents in the city with 20,000 in the surrounding area. 
And again, if you notice that Corinth appears to be sandwiched right between two bodies of water, it's located on this isthmus where you have bodies of water on both sides. And there were actually means where boats could be transported over land. So there wasn't a canal in Paul's day. There was one finally built in 1923. But they did have the technology to actually pick boats up out of the water, transport them six miles over land, and put them back in the water. So Corinth was a very uh, popular city for trade, for boats coming through. That contributed to its prosperity. And of course, like any maritime city, that also contributed certain vices. So you start to get an idea of some of the vices that go on in the city of Corinth and why Paul has to address some of the things he does, such as prostitution and other various matters. Now, this church was established... Uh, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 18. So if you want to peek there just for a minute, let me read you the story of how this church was founded. And I'll just make very brief comments on uh, the events that took place in this city. So according to Acts 18, this is what we read about the founding of this church. Acts 18, beginning at verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So here's some familiar names by now, Aquila and Priscilla. Paul finds them here in the city of Corinth, and he begins his ministry, as he often does, among the Jews, preaching or teaching in the synagogue, while supporting himself, working as a tent maker. Aquila and Priscilla have the same trade, hence why they get along so well. In verses 5 and 6, we read, When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. When Paul established the church in Thessalonica, things started well, but then a riot ran him out of town. He had to leave these two co-workers behind, Silas and Timothy, and make his way into a new city. Well, that city was Corinth, and eventually Silas and Timothy make their way down and join him. This enables Paul now to do ministry full-time. But he's starting to run into trouble in the synagogue, so he ends his work there. However, as we pick up in verse 7, then Paul left the synagogue, and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city." So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. So Paul does see some fruit from his ministry in the synagogue. And then he begins to see some fruit from his ministry in the city. 
And so God comes and encourages him to stay in Corinth. He gives him this promise of a large harvest. And so Paul remains in that city for 18 months. And then lastly we read, beginning in verse 12, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names uh, about and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern whatever. So these Jews sue Paul, but the proconsul, Gallio, he is not interested in religious disputes, and so he dismisses the case. Even when they start beating somebody up, he just says, I'm not interested. And then we read at the beginning of verse 18 that Paul eventually leaves for Syria. So that's how the church in Corinth is established, and Paul ends up having a ministry there of almost two years. Now, two quick fun facts before we leave this. On the other side of your sheet, this is how exciting it gets on Sunday night. On the other side of your sheet, you have a picture of what may look like a bunch of stones, but this is the judgment seat before which Paul stood before Gallio. So when we just read there that he stood trial there before Gallio when the Jews complained about him, that's a place called the Bema or the judgment seat. It's where trials like this would be held. The actual Corinthian judgment seat still exists to this day. It's been preserved by archaeologists. That site on your map is where Paul once stood 2,000 years ago. And by the way, archaeologists have also found an inscription that names Gallio as the proconsul of Achaia in A.D. 51. So we can actually locate Paul's time in Corinth rather specifically. And it's while he's ministering in this city, by the way, second fun fact, that he writes the letter to the Romans. So this letter that we're finishing up on Sunday mornings, he wrote it while ministering to the Corinthians. He also wrote First and Second Thessalonians that we went through just a few years ago uh, during this same time. So that's how the church was established. Now, what happened after the church was established? Well, let me walk you through this, and then I think we'll pause here uh, for tonight and pick it up uh, when we resume next week. But what happened after the church was established, and what happened after Paul left? will really help shed some light on what's going on in these two letters. Now, some of this, again, is just pieced together from statements Paul makes throughout the letter. So again, some of this will become clearer as we go through the letter, but I think if you have it in your mind headed in, it will help things make more sense. So Paul goes on. He leaves Corinth. He moves on to do further ministry. Well, Apollos, at some point, visits Corinth. And through Apollos, Paul learns of various problems in the church, one of which is sexual immorality. So Paul dispatches a letter to the Corinthians warning them about associating with sexually immoral people. Now, I don't think there he means like, hey, avoid them, shun them. I just think he says when it comes to how that works with the life of the church, 
You can't continue in immorality while eating at the Lord's table and professing Christ. So he writes to the church in order to address that. He refers back to this letter in 1 Corinthians. So the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians is not actually what we call 1 Corinthians. It's a letter that has not survived to the present day. There's no uh, copy or further reference to this letter in any material that we have uh, about the New Testament. But he wrote this original letter uh, warning them about associating with sexual immoral people. Then at a later point, he wrote what we call 1 Corinthians. He wrote it from the city of Ephesus, probably around the year A.D. 53. And this letter goes into more detail. It addresses issues that Paul has heard about and answers questions that the Corinthians posed to him. So probably when he wrote that first letter, they wrote him back. They had questions. And then more reports came to Paul, and so he writes this second letter to them, again, what we call 1 Corinthians. Corinthians. Now, as Paul continues to travel and as the Corinthians are receiving this letter, Timothy eventually informs Paul that the letter was not well received. So Paul makes a second visit to Corinth. He goes back after his original church planting trip, and he describes that visit in his later letters as a painful visit. Now again, just reconstructing from some of the things Paul says, one commentator says this. During that visit, one of the Corinthian believers made a verbal attack on Paul. And to his chagrin, no one came to his defense. So he's visited them as a follow-up to the two letters he's written. Again, the second letter, not well received. So he makes a visit to try to improve things, and that visit doesn't go well. So Paul continues on his journey, and he writes a third letter to the Corinthians, which, according to things he says in 2 Corinthians, caused them sorrow. So once again, we have another letter written to the Corinthians that Paul refers back to, but has not survived to the present day. Now, maybe some of what he writes in 2 Corinthians repeats some of the things he says, but this third letter is, again, not in existence any longer. And so Paul, preparing now for a third visit to the Corinthians, encounters Titus, who tells him that the Corinthians have handled the antagonist, you know, the person who caused opposition to Paul, and that the Corinthians have affirmed their love to him. So things have gotten better. But now there are these super apostles in Corinth, that's what Paul calls them, and they are disparaging Paul's ministry. And so at this point, Paul writes, or maybe he finishes it, maybe it was already in process, a fourth letter to Corinth, the letter that we call 2 Corinthians. And as I said when I opened the letter, Paul's heart for the people is on display in this letter to the Corinthians. I know we ran through that really fast, but I bet you didn't miss the theme of conflict, did you, in Paul's relationship to the Corinthians. They've strayed into areas he's trying to correct. That's not going well. He's trying to visit. That's not going well. 
Then things improve somewhat, but there's still these people here that are disparaging his ministry. Paul is trying to work with these Christians in order to bring them to a good obedience to God. And it is a rocky, tumultuous path. And one of the themes that we'll just see on full display in 2 Corinthians is Paul affirming his love for these people and the fact that no matter how much they disparage him, he will love them. And no matter how much they don't think he's what he ought to be, the grace of God will triumph in his life and in theirs as well. Again, we'll get into all this down the road. But we just get these little hints throughout the letters that maybe Paul isn't quite what the Corinthians thought he should be. Not as impressive, not as eloquent, not as physically impressive. But he says, you know what, when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. And it's the grace of God that will prevail in my life and in yours as well. And we'll dig some of those themes out of the rest of the introduction when we come back next week, and then we'll begin to plow through this great book. So let's give thanks to God for the life of the church. Let's give thanks to God for the sufficiency and power of his grace. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for just a mere taste tonight of what this letter might contain. Thank you for the way it already just taps into these great themes of the Christian life and the power of your grace to save people, the power of your grace to conform us to the image of Christ, and the power of your grace to preserve relationships that get strained or pushed or pulled in directions that nobody ever wanted them to go. And yet it is the grace of God. Uh, that can sustain your servants, that can sustain your church, and that can create unity and love. So help us to find your strength and our weakness and the glory in Christ and his cross. And just teach us those things as we go through this letter. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing in closing hymn 252. When I survey the wondrous cross, hymn 252, we'll sing all four verses. Stand with me, please.